stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Uh, the topic of official bilingualism, maybe not the most popular topic uh, here in Alberta. And not that Albertans are against the idea of Canada as a bilingual country, but maybe what official bilingualism in practice has at times meant, or maybe how it pertains to how a certain province is treated. But look, I mean, we are an officially bilingual country, and, and that is going to have some implications. Uh, the federal government is uh, moving to, to make some pretty significant changes, though, to the Official Languages Act. They say there's a need to protect and promote French in Canada. One of their proposals I wanted to zero in on here because this has come up before and it raises some really fascinating questions. One of the proposals is to enshrine into law the requirement that Supreme Court of Canada justices be bilingual. Now, the, the, the liberals have already kind of gone in that direction by making it clear that that's their preference. But this is going to a whole other level by requiring it by law. So what are the potential issues that this all, all raises here? Joining us to, to explore this in a little more detail, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this morning, Emmett McFarlane, Associate Professor of the Department of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. He's the author of Governing from the Bench, the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Judicial Role, his forthcoming book, Constitutional Pariah, reference uh, regarding Senate reform and the future of Parliament. Emmett McFarlane, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So th this is interesting, and I, I know for, for watchers uh, of this kind of stuff, this definitely stood out as a significant announcement because we, we've kind of gone through this debate a few times. So what was your reaction, when, first of all, when you heard that uh, this was going to be among the proposals? Well, I was a bit surprised because the prime minister has thus far exercised his own discretion to make appointments by appointing only fluently bilingual judges to the Supreme Court already. Um, and there's a serious constitutional barrier to to actually making it the law in that the Supreme Court ruled in 2014 that any changes to the eligibility requirements for Supreme Court judges would require unanimous provincial consent under our amending formula. Um, and this is because the amending formula refers to the composition of the Supreme Court and the relevant sections of the Supreme Court Act were deemed by the court at that time to be effectively constitutionally entrenched, which is a long way of saying, I'm not clear on how the government thinks Parliament can enact this law um, if, if it indeed requires a constitutional amendment. Um, they, in their release, indicated that they are taking into account the relevant jurisprudence and that's that's exactly what they're talking about um, but they seem to suggest that they can make a change to the official languages act with respect to the supreme court not have to change the supreme court act and therefore everything's okay um, but that almost certainly would be deemed an unconstitutional workaround so there's a constitutional barrier here that I, I'm very curious to see what the legislation will actually look like and how it will address that. And then, there's, of course, there's the practical issue of mandating bilingualism for Supreme Court judges that we've, we've talked about before, that particularly in the Western provinces, um, there isn't a large pool 
of uh, bilingual jurists to draw from. Um, and then add to the, that to the fact that this prime minister, I honestly believe, would love to appoint an indigenous person to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, and the official bilingualism requirement is also a barrier to that, because in a lot of cases, you're basically requiring an indigenous candidate to be effectively trilingual, because many of them may know um, their own, the, the language of their own nation and, mm-hmm. and English, um, and then we're expecting them to also know French on top of that. Um, so there, there are kind of legal and practical difficulties, I think. Yeah, those are some interesting points, right? So there are kind of two questions, I guess, you know, the, the merits of, of um, a bilingual requirement and, and the constitutional practicalities of, of making that change, and, and both are, are very relevant here. What about, I mean, given that it is the Supreme Court of Canada, right, and that expectation that whether you are uh, Francophone, whether you are an Anglophone, uh, that you're able to have your day in court, as, as it were. And so how do we ensure then that uh, with bilingualism as the backdrop, that the Supreme Court of Canada is able to provide essentially equal justice? Uh, are we able to do that without a bilingualism requirement? Yeah, and it, I think it comes down to how you think that ought to work. So at the institutional level, there's no question, and I don't think anyone would disagree, with the idea that the court itself needs to be a bilingual institution. Um, we have always had uh, at least some Francophones as members of the court, and, and most members of the court have been bilingual, at least in the modern era, although there, are always, there have always been a handful of exceptions to that rule. The court also has the best translators, along with Parliament, the best translators in the country. Um, and so for some people to basically say, well, the court is functionally bilingual. It can operate in both languages. Uh, it can conduct hearings in both languages. Even when there's that one or two judges on the court who struggle with French, they can have, um, they, they have services available to help them. They can have francophone or bilingual law clerks to help go through some of the written material. And it all works fine. Other people say, and I think they have a valid viewpoint, other people say that, you know, working with translators and getting assistance just isn't the same, and that Canadians have the right to conduct a hearing without translation with the expectation that all nine judges can work fluently in either language. And that it's that latter point that I think the federal government is looking to to change. They're they're proposing to remove what has been an exemption for the Supreme Court on that on that issue of, of an expectation of, of competence by the individual judges. When it comes to Bilingualism. I guess the question then, if, if this is a legal requirement, like, are, are we talking about completely, totally fluent in both languages? Is it possible to, you know, to put that into law, what the expectation or requirement is? Well, not, to me, that's always been one of the tricky things, right? Because uh, we've had bilingual judges uh, appointed as standing practice. We've had judges who weren't necessarily fluently bilingual. Um, you know, I think Chief Just, former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin is a good example of that, someone whose French improved after mm-hmm. she got on the court. 
And so recognizing that for many people, and including occasionally some of the, the Francophone judges, their, their knowledge of that second language is never necessarily going to be as good or as perfectly fluent um, uh, as, as, it, as their first language. So what, so what is the expectation here? When we refer to functional fluency, it's basically an expectation that someone can follow an oral argument without getting lost, that they have a, a reasonable level of competency in reading and perhaps even in writing in that second language. Um, the idea that you would, we would limit this to people who are perfectly fluent in both languages I think would make the practical reality of, of finding qualified people even more difficult, uh, at least when it comes to certain provinces like, like the Western provinces. Right. Well, it's the thing. I mean, yeah, Beverly McLaughlin has, has taken some steps to learn French, but, you know, could she reasonably sit down and write an entire ruling in, in French? Probably not. And I mean, is, and if you say if that's the, the standard, then we're really limiting the pool, aren't we? Yeah, and so it's not, again, it's not clear whether, you know, I've always assumed when this discussion comes up that we're talking about kind of a functional fluency, not, right. not seeking perfection. But, but as we've seen, that itself has brought some challenges. I honestly believe um, that this government would have appointed an Indigenous judge by now if not for uh, this, this language requirement. So we shall see then, because obviously the government has the, the purview, the prerogative, the jurisdiction uh, to, to make changes, changes it sees fit to the Official Languages Act, but changes to the Supreme Court are not typically done through the, the Official Languages Act. Well, so and that, bear that in mind that it's not, you know, before that 2014 decision, it wasn't clear that the Supreme Court Act was part of the Constitution. That was a novel decision by the court. And so it, if the court's actually going to be consistent it's possible that changes to the Official Languages Act that affect the composition of the Supreme Court in this way would also be deemed constitutional and require thus a constitutional amendment. So I would, I would actually argue, based on, based on what we know that the Supreme Court has said, that the federal government cannot do this unilaterally. The, the parliament cannot do this unilaterally. It, that what it's trying to do would be amend the Constitution without provincial consent. Um, and so, again, we haven't seen the specific legislation yet and what, how it'll be worded, what it'll look like. But if it's doing what it says, <laughs> what they say it's going to do, I don't think what they're proposing is constitutional. Right, and which isn't to say that it can never be done, but just like any other constitutional change, there there's a formula for doing that. Yeah, and so what they would need to do in this case is get every provincial legislative assembly on board. And I'm not sure, given... <laughs> I'm not sure that's in the cards, um, because every time constitutional change has been raised... Quebec has been consistent, for example, that it will not agree to any constitutional amendment absent either more powers for Quebec or recognition of Quebec as a distinct society in the Constitution. Um, and that once you, once you kind of hold the Constitution hostage on one issue in exchange for all these other issues, the proposal dies on the table. That, that's been the legacy of 
the 1980s and 1990s in this country, that we are basically scared of opening the Constitution. Yes, that's very true. We'll see how this all plays out. Uh, Professor McFarland, appreciate your insight uh, on all of this. Thanks for making some time for us here. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. Uh, That is uh, Emmett McFarland. Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science uh, at the University uh, of Waterloo, someone who focuses uh, on constitutional law, the Supreme Court. Uh, his uh, latest book, Governing from the Bench, the Supreme Court of Canada and the Judicial Role, and his uh, forthcoming book, Constitutional Pariah. So, as he sees it, and uh, he's not alone, that if the liberals want to change the rules around Supreme Court justice or to make any changes to the Supreme Court, you're talking about a constitutional change. And that means we go to the formula, and it's all spelled out for how you reopen and make changes to the Constitution. And yes, it's all but a guarantee then that it would be a complete non-starter. Now, the liberals, it was certainly their prerogative uh, to, to have certain preferences. They're the ones who choose the Supreme Court justices. So if they want to give preference uh, to bilingual judges, then they're entitled to do so. Right. The, the process of selecting a Supreme Court justice is inherently subjective. Who you think is a good candidate might not be who somebody else thinks is a good candidate. The government obviously has to decide they're going to use their own criteria. And that's fine. That's how it is. So the liberals want to keep appointing bilingual justices. They can do that. You know, as Emmett McFarland points out, the Liberals certainly talked a good game about more fundamental change in terms of appointing uh, an Indigenous judge to the Supreme Court. That hasn't happened, probably because of this focus on on bilingualism. Look, we can have uh, judges in, in this country who go out of their way to learn both official language, who have some degree of fluency in both official languages. But if we make it a legal requirement that you be completely and totally fluent in both official languages, we're going to have a really tiny pool of, of judges to draw from. And the Supreme Court of Canada, I would argue, is, is too important for that. So we'll see how the liberals decide to approach this, and they might be getting into some constitutional tricky ground here. We shall see. All right. Our number here in Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. My name is Rob Breckenridge, sitting in today and for the next couple of weeks here on the Chorus Radio Network. All right, a bit of time here. Let's get back to the phones here, shall we? And uh, we'll say hello to Norm. Norm, go ahead. Hi, Rob. Uh, just quickly on Grace Life Church. Uh, I'm atheist, but this is not a theological. It's arguably not even politi- political I, I just want everyone to go to their website and read their public statement for perspective because it's actually very moving and very um, uh, actual, factual, I should say. And we've got the media, or not the media, uh, just on a news burp there about a half hour ago, someone speaking on behalf of the interfaith organization talking about how you shouldn't uh, let your religious views guide you like this it has nothing to do with religion but we're getting this message on our airwaves and she's very misinformed that woman who's speaking on behalf of the interfaith organization but really the public statement on their website before anyone judges them they need to read that that's all i have to say okay norman appreciate the phone call like i say uh, i don't know this is going to be resolved anytime soon but uh, again i mean my goal here is that we can continue to move in the right direction, that we can continue to be in a situation where the easing of restrictions is feasible. 
And it would be a real disservice to everybody if we ended up having to backslide here and, and take a step backward uh, because some felt that they were above the rules or they didn't want to follow the rules, right? We're, we're moving in the right direction. There's certainly all kinds of light at the end of the tunnel here. So I, I just hope we don't screw this up. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.